All righty, here we are. We're here. Summer's just begun, but it's hotter than ever. Yeah, it's been. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the entertainment industry, you know, in the past few years, the advancements have been greater than, you know, 20 years prior, maybe even more. Oh, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Technology will do that to you. Just exponential. Yep. I mean, technology will do it to you, but guess what? What's old oftentimes becomes new again anyway. That's true. That's true. Yeah, we've got some great stories to talk about in terms of old becoming new again and maybe even better than ever. Uh, But before that, of course, this is the one and only Screen Heat Miami with your co-hosts, Kevin Sharpley and JL Martinez. We are brought to you by Camacol, Kijik Multimedia, Cinevision, and the Miami Media and Film Markets, which, of course, is going to be celebrating very soon in only six weeks time. The MMFM 12 conference coming to you live from the Biltmore Hotel, July 21st to the 24th. Back. It's back and better than ever. We're calling it back to business, baby. <laughs> and things are back to business. I mean, our guest is as big as it gets. Yes, yes. Stuart Mekinen is an amazing producer out of the UK. A very talented uh, Scottish producer who has done so much work over the decades, including a lot of great stuff with the BBC. Uh, But most recently, what he's probably most known for here in the States is the incredible, amazing Amazon hit series, The Man in the High Castle, which had a glorious run, 40 hours of just high-end TV drama, which was just really spectacular television. I'm glad you said 40 hours because, you know, what I teach my students is, you know, content, you look at it as, not what type of content, but you look at it in time parameters, you know, short, five minutes, 30 minutes, feature, hour, three hours. Right. And then episodic content, it allows you to flesh out characters. If it's good content, sometimes it's just bad. So it's like, okay, I just watched a whole season of crap. I don't even know (laughs) anything about these people, you know, whatever. But great content, you do get the chance to take a deep dive into the characters, into the story, and see how these characters are fleshed out over time. And one big advantage of a show like The Man in the High Castle is there were two sides of the characters, three sides of characters, because the show evolved over time and space and different, uh, you know, dimensions, or, you know, we could say, you know, uh, different uh, timelines, storylines. I mean, it's just brilliant what they were able to pull together. Yeah, just incredible storytelling. And, you know, again, what Stuart will get into the the big sort of what if dramas, and just that, that is a big what if, and it's something that they tackled so elegantly and so creatively. So very great. If you haven't seen it, definitely got to stream that one on Amazon. Yeah, what they were able to squeeze together, and he talks about it, you know, even from conception. um, And this is Philip K. Dick, who's one of my favorite authors, and, you know, Blade Runner, which is another one of my favorite inspirations. But um, uh, uh, so with that being said, this was so 
in depth that we had to turn it into a two-part series. That's right. This is a two-parter. 40 hours of drama, two hours of podcast. It's all it's all going to come together over the, these next two sessions. But we were very excited to have Stuart, who will also be making an exclusive live appearance at MMFM. So if you enjoy this podcast, you'll be able to actually meet Stuart live if you register for the conference. That's right. And many others. Oh, yes. I mean, you know. Um, you, we were just talking about Brenda Gilbert and, and Braun, you know, oh, yeah. which is, you know, the company that her and her husband co-founded, you know, that they founded together yeah. and, you know, that they just got a huge distinction. Yeah. Hollywood reporter calling them international producers of the year, uh, which yeah. is a huge accolade and just really a testament to their work. Uh, you know, even though now there are 200 employees across several continents, uh, they're still based in Vancouver and they're still, you know, just churning out very, very amazing, just kind of touching stories that really are about the human spirit and, you know, really a filmmaker driven company, as Brenda likes to say. And it's uh, it really shows in in all the types of content they produce, whether it's award winning feature films, television content, animation, they're getting into the digital space now. It's just so much that they've got going on. And, and Brenda will be with us as well at the conference. So excited to hear what she has to say uh, in her session as well. So it's, uh, it's an interesting time, my friend. Yeah. And I mean, you can just say, I'll just talk about one. When you talk about, you know, artist centric, just one property, and it shows the love and the care that they've put in on both sides. Todd Phillips, the Joker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, an incredible film that they co-financed with Warner Brothers. And, uh, you know, obviously a, a sizable commercial success for them, uh, but also- And just, critical. You know, again, and, critical. and critical, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this is uh, one of the only sort of superhero movies I know that premiered at Venice uh, and then went on such an amazing run, not only commercially, but in terms of the kudos uh, with the Oscar nominations and all that stuff. And, you know, in 2019, which was, we thought was just the beginning, such a banner year for so many studios in terms of box office, uh, who would have thunk it, right? Yeah. <laughs> what would have happened the following two years? But, you know, as they always say, then a hero comes along. And just when you thought. <laughs> I need a hero. Theatrical. I don't, know if that, I don't know if that song is from that movie. <laughs> it's not, but it's an 80s song. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely in Short Circuit, which is one of my favorites too. But, uh, but yes. Talk about flying into the danger zone. Top Gun Maverick, uh, according to Forbes, now looking to pass $600 million worldwide. Talk about taking my breath away. That song was in the movie. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, just that was. And and so what I think what we can take away, first of all, is, you know, remember, this is a film that had been in development for so many years and was shot pre-COVID. I mean, I think it, they shot it over 2018, 2019. It was supposed to be released sometime in 2020, uh, as opposed to doing what a lot of the big media companies did, which was do a, a streaming release. Paramount held its war chest very close to the vest and just found the right time to release this film this year over the, the, the uh, Memorial Day weekend. And it just has been bonanza for them. Yeah. And, and really, I think a savior for 
the theatrical film industry in general. I mean, you know, this is not a superhero film. It is a franchise, right? Obviously, it's a sequel. It's a big studio movie, but it's not, you know, Spider-Man. It's, you know, this is a, this is a very interesting film that I think has had so much in terms of connecting with a global audience being sort of so universal in terms of who it has attracted uh, from both fans of the original film to young fans who never seen Tom Cruise in the original Top Gun and now are getting exposed to that and going back, of course, and streaming and renting the original Top Gun. And I think it's just been a great, great, great run for, for Tom Cruise. You know, he obviously demanded a theatrical only release. He's a huge fan of cinema uh, and wanted to make sure that he had the exclusive uh, exhibition as well, uh, which he got. And, you know, I think everyone is benefiting handsomely from that run. Yeah. I mean, he was at Cannes. So, That's you know, right. they had, and for, I mean, he's done some, you know, I mean, Magnolia. So his turn to Magnolia was masterful. So he's done some really great roles, but he's more known as a commercial actor. So, you know, for them to celebrate him there in Cannes was huge. You know, they had the, you know, the French uh, air service. Jets flying by. Yeah. Yeah. And then they had, uh, yeah, it was incredible. Then they did another premiere, I think in London, where, uh, you know, they had some of the royal family there. Uh, And then, of course, they had a big splashy premiere in San Diego uh, at the at the uh, the naval base down there, I believe, on one of those aircraft carriers. Uh, And so tons of money, obviously, Paramount putting into the promotion of the film Uh, and obviously Tom Cruise doing everything he could to promote it. But you could just tell from that first teaser trailer that this was going to be a monster hit. Uh, And, you know, we've been talking about it for a while. But now that it's finally gotten released, I really think, again, this is going to allow other studio players to start to once again respect that theatrical window and really allow some of these films to shine at the box office before making their way onto a streaming platform. Yeah, and this film, you know, in in its core is a drama, you know, with with action. And so another thing, you know, I I talk to my students about looking at genres and, you know, how you want to enter, have an idea of what you're entering into. So, you know, if you want to be a romantic comedy, nothing against romantic comedies, it's not my forte, but if you want to be a romantic comedy director or writer or, you know, in that um, part of the business, you know, it, but it's, it's a smaller segment, you know? So it's a smaller, smaller pool, could be more difficult. But if you look at the pool, you know, the top 10 films, 60% of them, 70% of them are comic sci-fi films you know, the top sellers. And you know, you do have one drama in there, which is Titanic. You know, right. so I think Titanic is number three or it might be number four by now. Right. But this is, it, it seems like, you know, with this trajectory that Top Gun is going to make it there into the top 10. And sure. so, you know, maybe, well, it, it's already Tom, Tom Cruise's biggest seller, but it may, you know, top a billion, you know, we'll see. Yeah. But the bigger thing is that this may, be a harbinger for dramas, you know, the return of big dramas. So, oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And like I said, not every big studio release has to be a superhero film. Right. And uh, I think that it's great to see a film like this that you said is more of a drama, like you said, an action drama, but not your traditional, what you would expect, the next big Marvel, Star Wars, whatever. Uh, this is definitely something that I think that the smaller studio, you know, like, you know, Paramount obviously uh, having to find its own way, you know, they don't have the, you know, 
DC universe. They don't have the Marvel universe. They don't have Star Wars. So they have to rely on these great storytellers, on these, you know, big actors like Tom Cruise to really, you know, hit one out of the park. And, you know, kudos to Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer, who, you know, this is going to be the segue, you know, the reigning champ of Memorial Weekend with, of course, Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, so he, he's uh, unseated him. And speaking of being unseated. He won. Ah, hey. JD. He may be back. Jack Sparrow yeah. may be back. Yes. So for those of you who don't know. I mean, yet, he is back. Yes. You know, but he may be back on screen. Yep. Um, in the guise of Johnny Depp. Absolutely. So, so yeah, uh, about a week ago, it was announced that Johnny Depp did win his uh, uh, defamation suit in Virginia uh, for all intents and purposes. Now, Amber Heard did win uh, a smaller countersuit, uh, which I think was based on something that Johnny Depp's lawyer actually said. It wasn't even Johnny, it was his lawyer that said yeah. something uh, defamatory against Amber Heard about three or four years ago that she got, I think, like a $2 million judgment against Johnny Depp's side. But Johnny Depp did win big. He didn't get the 50 million. million. But 15? yeah, he was he was awarded fifteen million dollars, uh, so you know he couldn't net ten to twelve million. Now that said, this will be appealed, and but you know as I think, I I don't think this was ever about the money for Johnny. No. I think that he really just wanted his career back. He wanted to be respected uh, at the highest levels of the industry again, and I think I think he's gonna get it uh, again. Whether or not he returns to his iconic Jack Sparrow. I think is to be seen. He did say at one point that, you know, no matter what Disney threw at him, he would not revisit the character because of how he was let go. So unceremoniously, uh, eh, that said, hang on. You know, that's, that sounds, that sounds like a, a contract point. That me. sounds like, yeah, a negotiation point for his agents, <laughs> you know, back end, triple the salary, whatever. Uh, and so, but I, I do think that, it does open the door for other franchises. I know, you know, he was also unfortunately let go from, from Warner Brothers and the Fantastic Beast series, you know, yeah. follow up to Harry Potter. And, you know, that, that obviously, that relationship didn't end well. Uh, and so I know J.K. Rowling's always been a fan and kind of stood by him. Uh, so, you know, good for her, good for, uh, you know, Dior. Uh, they never let go of, of Johnny as their ambassador. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, definitely... Uh, uh, so kudos to them, uh, you know, for kind of standing by Johnny throughout this time. You know, he did thank his fans, uh, which he actually said was his employers. <laughs> so, you know, those are the ones that keeps him afloat. And so he's, uh, I think he's definitely enjoying this ride now. Um, again, you know, Amber Heard said that she was going to appeal that, you know, this was not a, a proud moment for, in her eyes, uh, in terms of what she felt she went through. Uh, but, you know, I think, they were able to point out that at least some of the time, you know, she may have been at the very least exaggerating <laughs> the truth, if not, you know, all out just kind of making things up. But it's uh, it's unfortunate, uh, you know, because you never want to see anyone's career tarnished uh, because of, you know, these unfortunate personal circumstances or domestic issues. Uh, but, you know, I think that now at least Johnny felt like he had some retribution and he's able to kind of hopefully move on with his career and, and we'll see what offers come down the pike. Yeah, but there's a flip side to it because, you know, there are a lot of people on the other side that are saying this could, you know, really move towards snuffing out um, a lot of the momentum that the Me Too movement helped right. to gain, right. you yeah, know, for, no. for women and, you know, for their rights. 
but you know, there's, there is a pendulum. And so I'm not saying that this was the pendulum swinging in the other way, but um, you know, I think on both sides, on the Johnny Depp side, there was a lot of uh, abuse. On the Amber Heard side, there was a lot of abuse. Was that abuse physical? Then that, and that was, I think, one of the biggest points of contention. I don't, I still don't know. I didn't watch the trial, but I think, you know, it was just a toxic relationship. So, you know, the takeaways can, you, you can look at it one way or you can look at it the other way. Right. But, um, you know, when you talk about, you know, who's going to come out as someone that uh, will have a life-changing circumstance, it, you know, really looked like Johnny Depp, although Dior did keep him on board, um, wasn't going to be able to work in the capacity that he had worked before. And now, you know, that path looks a little bit more clear. So we'll see what's yeah. going to happen with Amber Heard. I don't know. I think that this could be potentially a, a really big blow to her career. So. Yeah, it could. And, you know, there, there was talk about, you know, potentially cutting her out of Aquaman 2. Uh, so she, she had made the claim that they had reduced her screen time to something like 10 minutes because of this new suit, something that actually I think the head of DC Films denied, uh, saying that, you know, that was, the, I guess, the intention all along or whatever it was. But, you know, going forward for her career, uh, not sure, you know, where, where she takes it from here. Like you said, you know, she was considering herself a, a spokesperson for the Me Too movement. And whether or not this is a pendulum swing or maybe it's the idea that you have to just kind of look at these cases individually and not just make these sort of broad strokes, you know, accusations one side or the other. Because like you said, there, there could be evidence of, of, of issues on both sides. But They knew it was a toxic relationship. So, they, yeah. you know, you yeah. shouldn't have put the dirty laundry out, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This may be something that, that you need to have, have a cut, to. you know, a cut, cut clear case. Mm. Right. You know, yeah. So, but um, yeah. but talk about pendulum swingings and what's old becoming new again. Yes. Some of our hometown uh, favorites. Yes. Speaking of are love in and a marriage. reboot. Yes, love and marriage. Love and marriage. <laughs> um, Father of the Bride getting the Cuban treatment uh, in a brand new film, and like you said, old becoming uh, Rose Campoyo. A little arroz con pollo, a little salsa, a little merengue, a little Cuban cigar. And uh, there you have it. You have the, the Cuban remake of Father of the Bride starring hometown heroes Andy Garcia and Gloria Stefan uh, is set to be released later this month, actually, on, um, gosh, I'm going to, HBO Max. HBO Max. <laughs> if it's still going to be called that, you know, who knows what the discovery Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, but the, for now, <laughs> Discovery Max Max Plus, <laughs> yeah, forward slash hyphen whatever. Uh, yes, yeah, so just corny yeah. logo. Yes, yeah, corny logo. Ugh, yeah, how much yeah. did they spend on that logo? I think uh, yeah, five or dollar ninety nine. <laughs> Outsourcing. <laughs> I roll uh, down the street. Yeah, yeah, just crazy. Uh, so, so anyway, you know, if a lot of you remember maybe the original film in the early 90s starring Steve Martin and Diane Keaton. Uh, now we're seeing, again, a very fresh Cuban-American retelling of the story set in Miami uh, about a young Cuban-American couple, you know, uh, and about to embark in holy matrimony and the sort of uptight father who kind of has to 
deal with all of that, played by, of course, the legendary actor Andy Garcia. So, you know, we uh, definitely always, yes, root for the home team. So we want to make sure that you guys all go out there and uh, stream this film, give it some numbers, give it some buzz uh, when it comes out in just another week or two. So, but it's going to be exciting. And they did film apparently the big wedding scene at the Biltmore, which is, of course, the home of the MMFM. There you go. There you go. And so that should be, uh, should be a lot of fun to watch this film. Uh, it's been a while since we've seen Gloria in anything major. I know she, she did make a little bit of a, a, a small cameo appearance in the new One Day at a Time when that was on Netflix. I think in the last season she made an appearance, but, you know, it's been a while since we've seen her in a bigger movie. So uh, yeah. acting wise, um, I know her songs have been featured in many, many films and TV shows. Making but, a lot of money off of sinks. Yes, yes. The Estefan uh, empire continues to grow from Broadway yep. to film to the music world. Uh, they're definitely uh, their universe is huge. Yeah, they're still doing it. So uh, excited to see, you know, the new take and see what what little Cubanisms they kind of sneak in there. Maybe there's <laughs> there's some cafecito. Maybe there's some empanadas. Maybe there's some pastelitos. I don't know. Maybe a visit to Versailles. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. But I did want to very quick before we jump into the interview, you know, I said that the Estefans have a huge universe. We always want to try to tap into what's happening in the future of the film, media, and entertainment industry. And um, as big as it gets, the metaverse is one of the hottest ticket items. Mm-hmm. An industry that's pegged to be by 2024, an over $800 billion industry. Wow. By 2030, an over $3 trillion industry. The writing is on the wall. Wow. So, yeah, we talked about Brenda Gilbert and, you know, what they're getting into over there at Braun, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of convergence of media and digital and all these things. Well, when I say writing is on the wall, Disney has announced their head of metaverse, Mark Bazan. And this announcement just lets you know that, you know, this is here to stay and it's here to come. And I'm just going to demystify it a little bit. Metaverse is, um, you know, the push into what's called Web3. And Web3 is, you know, let's just say it's 3D-ifying online experiences in a way. You know, a lot of it is connected to blockchain and some of the you know, future leaning technologies, but, you know, you go to a website and instead of just seeing, you know, this 2D space, you'll be able to enter into the websites, you know, you'll be able to go to online stores, you'll be able to try on shoes and, you know, see 3D views of your glasses, try one. Oh, wow. No, that's, uh, that is uh, definitely something that is, is what's coming and what is new. So I think that we're definitely going to follow the metaverse. But I think what we should do now is definitely jump into our interview with a legendary UK film producer and television icon, Stuart McKinnon. Now we're officially recording and just having a great little conversation with Stuart in regards to uh, education on both sides of the pond. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Let's kick it off. So, yeah. So tell us a little bit, obviously, Stuart, you know, um, we always usually start, you know, going way back, uh, you know, to maybe when you were in school uh, and you were starting to formulate your identity. Uh, when did you first de decide and how did that come about that you wanted to pursue these sort of more creative endeavors, um, whether it be filmmaking, <laughs> producing <That's laughs> or art? Yeah, well, that, that was, uh, I was one of these complete failures in school, you know, and, uh, you know, where I never passed an exam. And, uh, you know, one of these parents' evenings when my mom and mother and father came, they were sat between two couples who knew each other and they were chatting about their wonderful sons passing exams. And uh, uh, my mom and mom, mother and father sat listening to this conversation, you know, crossing over. And then at the, towards the end of the conversation, but did you hear that Stuart McKinnon got nothing for his maths? And they laughed. <laughs> and my mother and father said, when they came home, they said, oh, we heard you got zilch for your, uh, for your maths class. And uh, in that story in Capsate Southern, my parents just accepted. They wanted me to be, have a happy life. They wanted me to, uh, you know, to find the right path for me. But the academic and academic route was not, it didn't work for me. It was a, it was a, uh, this was back in, I was born, I was a post-war baby in which my parents fought in the Second World War and wanted, and many of that generation, they wanted a better life for their kids. So um, I was sent to what they thought was a good school, but it was an academic type school. So the two people in the school, the one, the only thing I could do, and I'm, I don't exaggerate, I mean, I couldn't pass an exam, was um, was in the art department. And uh, there, there was a, and I didn't realize the importance of this at the time, but there was a teacher there who really encouraged me. And uh, um, he had turned out, I won't, I won't go into this, but it was just a coincidence, but one of the great filmmakers of Scotland, I, I grew up in Scotland, in Edinburgh, Scotland, was a man called John Grierson. And John Grierson went, he, cre he created the docu a documentary style, a docu making documentaries. He in turn had been influenced by Russian uh, during the Russian Revolution. There were some really extraordinary filmmakers, including, I can name a few, Zygavertov and Dovshenko, um, who I later, in, in, when I went to film school, realized how talented and inventive and creative these guys were. But here in, in Little Scotland, a man called John Grierson picked up um, the camera and started to make movies. And on a Saturday in, on the television, he would show films from around the world. And so the coincidence was that this art teacher had actually worked on a film, which is in the archive in Scotland called um, Sound of the Streets. It's, 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 it's children singing songs. It's the most beautiful film, small film, black and white movie. Anyway, Grayson went, eventually immigrated to Canada and set up the Canadian Film Board. And the irony is I, I'm working in Canada on a project at the moment. And people said, who John Grierson? And I thought, this is a lesson of history. That you have these great figures in, a, in, in, your, in your generation, my generation, um, and they're lost. They're forgotten. And, and I think it's so important. It's just an aside here, but how important an understanding of history is and how these industries are progressively built. Film industry built by whole range of different people um, who contributed to it, not least by, by the way, in the Second World War, and people left 
those that were lucky enough to escape fascism, many of them went to Hollywood, both composers, um, filmmakers, um, and, and contributed, significantly contributed to the Hollywood movie, of the Hollywood movies of the 50s and 60s. Anyway, wow. my story is um, art school. Um, again, my parents going to school and the teacher said, God, really sorry, but your son will never pass an exam, so forget art school. So the art teacher suggested I become a monumental sculptor. And uh, I said to my parents, what's a monumental sculptor? Making gravestones. So I thought, oh, that's not for me. Wow. So, so the other thing was, um, you know, I wanted to be an artist, whatever an artist was, but you know, intuitively I thought I could draw and so on. So a neighbour of ours in Edinburgh, got a job as what was called a lithographic artist, and which is a basically a, a designer in the print industry. So I, began, I left school at 16, became an apprentice in the film industry, in the, in the, in the print industry. And uh, the people who was, they call them journeymen in these apprenticeships, um, is still one of my closest friends, who's now in his 80s, but a, a man who kind of opened the world to me, kind of sat in the desk for two or three years, sat beside this man who taught me about lettering and graphic design and so on. But I, I went to art school at, in the evenings and won a scholarship. I could always draw and uh, <laughs> won scholarship after scholarship to do it. I could just do it. I had this in me, I still can do it. And uh, so I went to Edinburgh Art College, uh, then got a scholarship to Royal College, which is a postgraduate college, to do painting and illustration. And then in the 60s, the child then, you know, this first generation, post-war generation, Everything was possible. You could open any doors. I mean, I literally, I went to London, second time in my life, when I was 19, with some illustrations. I had an address in London. It was a publication. I walked in the front door. A guy, a very famous designer, said, can you do these drawings for me by Thursday night? And so I just walked off the train, got a commission, no agents, no nothing, just you got a check at the end of it. I then... It was the beginning of understanding it was a business. I said, look, you've used my drawing. Can I have my drawing back? So I then was like, I started a little business where I would sell drawings. You publish uh, illustrations. And, uh, but my interest was in a kind of radical, a political um, publications. There were many. There was um, Black Dwarf. There was a magazine called Oz, which was a wild kind of Wild West, really wild sexually kind of pushed the boundaries. And I would I worked for them on a regular basis, um, doing illustrations freelance, whilst I was at Royal College. Then I was invited to um, design a set at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre Company by a director called Trevor Nunn, who's still alive and genius, actually, really genius. Sat by his side, and for the first time, it was a it was to open my eyes to a collective storytelling. So it was like a studio model where. Shakespeare Company, Royal Shakespeare Company, just produced Shakespeare's plays in Stratford. It was a beautiful theatre, um, attracts talent from all around the world. But you had a script and you had around 150 people building sets, making costumes, even had make, people making boots, leather shoes, two shoemakers. I mean, it's an incredible sort of um, industrial machine behind this extraordinary place. So I... You know, young guy in my 20s, um, I, people had seen my drawings, and uh, so I was invited to, to do this. But I, I sort of, I, it opened a door to me that as, a, as someone in, in a 
doing drawings, I was I had a phone call, pre-internet day, phone call and say, well, you could do an illustration for all the Sunday Times or the newspapers, which I worked for regularly. Really well paid. Um, but I would be on my own and working to deadlines. Went to the theatre for, spent three months in Stratford on this production and realised that you could work as a team collectively and you could work to a script. So that was my kind of, you know, it was a change for me. Take a career path as an illustrator, taking commissions, doing what other people wanted me to do. I'd be sent books. I would, um, I mean, all kinds of journals um, did exhibit stuff around the world. But then the, the going to Royal College, when I went back to Royal College, I thought I'll move into film. And... Uh, sort of learned the kind of the, the, the business of making films, thinking then that uh, the arts were limited and that you were sat at a desk in <laughs> a picture creating a story. Um, often it would be complementary to a story. It wouldn't be a standalone. This would be, I mean, this is typical illustration. Illustrate a book, illustrate a magazine, illustrate an article, illustrate a story. I was invited to um, the US to uh, cover trials, big trials, where you would go into the trial and do illustrations of the, the character who murdered someone. And I wouldn't do it. I just, that was a line I, I didn't, didn't want to do. It. Anyway, the film, on the film side, it, um, the thing that attracted me was that you made things collectively. You had to, it was a business, an industry in which, and also had a, a given audience. If you made a film, you'd raise the money, you would find an audience. And you could have a response to it from your film and it would have a long life. You did a drawing, it was um, transient. It would be in a book, it would be a magazine, it would, unless you got in some sort of classic. So the things I was doing would be transient. Film had some, um, it had an audience and it had a life and potentially would have a long life. So that, that was my introduction to, um, to film and the journey that took me into film. And from then on, um, I've just been learning. <laughs> just this afternoon before I came on the call, um, it's a project I'm developing with the BBC who suggested this writer. Um, and we were both, I was telling her I was coming on to talk about, <laughs> talk to you both. And we're trying, we're tackling a story, which is, I won't go into the story, I won't bore you with the story, but we're both on the same page. And she was talking about how I have basically created a story which she will then write as a screenplay and how we both will go on a journey with this framework, with this objective, actually not knowing where we will end up and how we will form the story. So it's, a, it's kind of, here I am in my 70s now, really still partnering with someone <laughs> as a team, knowing that if it does work and it does take off, there may be 200 people will be involved in making it and it will cost, I don't know, some millions of pounds to make and that it will be seen by many millions. She is working with, um, at the moment, with probably the most, in my view, the most, um, the most wonderful writer in the UK who just won the BAFTA uh, this year. But um, again, a, a guy who, who um, she was telling me got 12 million audience from and TV, which is uh, when this show went out just a few weeks ago, a few months, about well, a month ago. 
So to have that, to be as part of an industry in which you can collaborate with people, first of all, you're not at a desk, um, really attracted me. And that you have the privilege of working with people of different skills, different talent base. And the other, I think, which is most important to me, is that you can tell stories. And um, one thing I'm often asked is, well, why did you move from creating pictures then into the film industry? And I did direct for many years. I was a director for many years. But as a director, I felt you fall into, unless you're a kind of, you know, the authorial director, the, the, the director who makes their own films, to make a living, to live through this and to continue to work, you, you were taking on commissions from others. You were being asked to, to direct their movie. Whereas the producer, I can sit in my office here at home and can say, this is really important to me, or this is important to my children, or this is a story which I think should be told. And then look for that story and look for the people who can help you make that. And at the core of it, to um, the principle <laughs> that gets me up in the morning is to think I can create this story. I can identify this, this issue and I can, can explore this issue. And as I do it, I can, as you, you were saying, well, go, Joel, that um, what excites me is that you have to build this. And the way you build the building, it's got to have strong foundations. <laughs> it's, got to, it's got to reach people. It's got to speak to people. It's got to mean something to that audience. So it's trying to find a way to tell something that you find is, that you think is important, touched your life, and you know it affects others' lives but you have to kind of bring them to you, you have to kind of engage them in that, in that, that, on that journey. And particularly with long form drama, where you're, you're looking to draw an audience in who will commit to maybe 10, 20, 30 hours of story. So I think that is such a privileged position, but with the privilege come responsibilities and um, to try to do this in a way that's not just serving your own personal likes and dislikes, but looking for stories which um, may not touch your life directly, but touch many others. And you think, well, if I can tell that story, bring it together. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, um, I, I don't know of the, if it's kind of the impact it's having in the US, but the war in Ukraine at the moment is really, a, it's, it's terrifying and horrific what's, what's happening. And I relate this to something in the 60s, <laughs> before you guys were born, would be, um, there was a Vietnam War. And many of us in Europe were horrified by a war being conducted in, in, in Vietnam and campaigned against it. And a group of filmmakers made this film um, in the 60s to reflect on, their, on this war. And I thought, just in the last few weeks, I've been thinking, you know, I'm a filmmaker. Yeah, I, could, I have the ability, I have the knowledge, the kind of <laughs> relationships, perhaps to pull this together and make such a film. And that's something that is just serves an example, a topical example, I think. No one seems to be doing it. There's, there's news reporting going on every, um, every night, and, on, both on radio and the, and the press or on, online. There is, there's images, horrific images. There's millions of people being moved 
losing their lives um, and losing their, their, their future. And as filmmaker, I think, could I do something in drama? Could I do it with a whole range of filmmakers who are not part of that war, but who see that, um, uh, see and, and relate to the horror of, of what's going on and want to show solidarity with these people? So these, you know, you asked me where I started, that's where I am today. And in the middle of this, I've kind of wrestled uh, with so many stories that some get made and some don't get made. Right. Well, I wanted to jump in because I think you've kind of set the table now based mm -hmm. on your particular background and, and your journey and sort of what your uh, interest is, particularly in, in the types of stories you like to tell. And, you know, obviously your background as an artist, your interest in politics and history. Obviously, you mentioned the war in Ukraine as well as Vietnam. So now talk to us a little bit about how you first discovered uh, the Philip K. Dick novel and what that meant to you. Obviously, we're talking about The Man in the High Castle uh, and, and how you kind of nurtured and developed that material over time a little bit. Well, they, they, it's, a, it's a kind of like, a, it sounds um, name-dropping. <laughs> it's not just, you know. It's yeah, the name, you, you're in the industry. <laughs> you're working with the people. It's not really name-dropping. It's the people that you work with. And if, if there's any forum to do it on, this is the forum. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I read it as uh, there were two, two or three things in the in the sixties that there were so many things that just you know individually, personally, were coming to me. But it, it was a world that everything was both in in US and and in Europe, the world was open to a young person. It was just everything was possible. I mean, really, you know, I was from a relatively poor background with no parents with no education, no books on the wall, and so I am. Um, but I had read science fiction. I'd read Philip K. Dick. He was a cool guy to read. You know, friends would say, "Have you read you know his latest novel?" So I was aware of this, and because of my interest in politics, it was the one of his of his novels that did really connect with me. And you know, to those who don't know the story, the concept of the story is a what if. So he's known as a sci-fi writer of creating different worlds, but this world was a world that was really related to. A world that the world had just lived through a horrific war, and he was saying, "Well, what happened? these buggers had um, had survived and won the war. What would happen in, in Germany? Uh, what would happen in America? What would happen in the world if Germany and Japan had won the war?" And uh, I always puzzled as to why this had never been adapted, because <laughs> it's so <laughs> he is he is an industry in himself. I mean, there's so many people won't be aware, necessarily be aware of this, but so many books are, and short stories have been adapted. Um, you know, Philip K. Dick's books have been adapted. So the, the sort of what I've been working with uh, Ridley Scott's company um, on an entirely different project, which I am working on today, another project I'm working on today, but not with Ridley Scott. Um, and it was a, it was a, it was a conversation that we'd, we'd been developing a, a same story. Ridley Scott was developing a story a group in America and I'd been developing a story. I'd connected, I was ahead of the game, I'd researched it. Um, and I was talking, I had support from HBO. It was a BBC and HBO co-production. So I'd been to Russia, it was a story about um, Gorbachev and, uh, and, uh, and Ronald Reagan. And, and they, uh, Scott created this similar idea. They'd been approached by people who'd worked with uh, Ronald Reagan. 
and they approached HBO and HBO said it was a guy, Scots guy. <laughs> um, and so they were in London and came to see me and we had this conversation. So we started to work together on a number of projects. Um, the, um, the guy who runs the TV division, a really talented and uh, decent man, good guy. So we were working on that and uh, it was in a conversation that we had about Philip K. Dick that I said, I talked to BBC about developing this story and uh, because, and obviously Ridley had adapted Blade Runner, had created Blade Runner. And uh, so in a conversation that we started, I said, well, look, I'll develop this. I can get, if you can help secure the rights, the family still on his road, long since he died, sadly. But um, so it was a combination of, I then put this together in the UK and uh, there's a kind of, I mean, it's a sad story, but very typical of this um, business that I, um, you have an idea, you secure the rights, um, you appoint a writer and the writer has to be relate to the ambition of the project. And it's a very prominent writer, they're very expensive. It's just like, a, you know, this game so well. But um, I, um, I think I mentioned his name. His name is Frank DC. And he was the greatest of the British writers. And I, I knew Frank and um, Glaswegian made some extraordinary dramas. And he, um, he was very keen to do it, but he was ill. And uh, we hung on and hung on. Uh, and sadly, it was, I won't go into the details, but sadly he died. And then I moved from him to another, which I won't mention, a prominent playwright, again, one of the top, for me, one of the two top theatre writers in Britain. And uh, we developed that with the BBC, two, two, um, two episodes. And, but it was a very expensive. It was ambitious and expensive. And where I'd wanted to, um, this is just the, the mechanics in a way of a production. The story was principally set in the US, but the, because we were developing it in Britain, we want to imagine the story, not take it into the UK, but we wanted the UK to be a, an important part of this um, story. And with the approval of the estate, it's the, the daughters, we actually had a story where Churchill uh, was hung at the beginning. That was the inciting incident, in, in, hung in the Tower of London. To the British, that's really was, that is, you just don't go there. So this was such a shock. Anyway, the BBC eventually said, Stuart, look, this is such an ambitious show. Um, we will step back from this. And it had been talked about in the press and Universal, the studio picked it up. And uh, so two writers already worked on this, signed the contract. The day the contract, the day after the contract was signed by an exchange of, uh, it was actually the fax machine there. No, it, was, it wasn't, I'm exaggerating, but... It was, um, um, they said, but guys, we would like an American showrunner. And uh, so I had by chance got to know, and I, I don't want to, maybe I shouldn't name names, I won't name names, but a prominent showrunner who, who wrote the first, um, the first uh, season. And he had said to me, <laughs> he'd come to live in London, we had a dinner together and he said, Stuart, why did you get, why did you not ask me to do this show? The, the, I'm a fan of Dick's work. And I said, well, we already got script and committed. So there was a, this was whilst we were working with the British writer. So, um, 
So I was able on the call to Universal to say, look, if, you, if you've got the rights now and you're going to do it and you want an American writer, I do know this um, writer is very keen to do it. So I had the horrible task of telling the British writer that, that um, it had been uh, passed and Universal would want to work with an American writer. And uh, that just went so fast. That was really, I mean, for me, a really exciting, talented writer to work on that first season. Very different takes on these three people that had on the story. But um, everything was looking great. And then I had a call from Business Affairs at the studio to say, uh, a very friendly call. Sadly, sure, these two guys have just left. The two, the two bosses who were running the studio had left. And we're cleaning the uh, slate. Oh, really? That's great. Um, thanks, guys. But look, we're really excited by the project and, um, but, and we, won't, we won't hold it. We won't put it in the library because they, they own. That afternoon, I had a call from at the boss of Amazon <laughs> who said, I know the rights are free and uh, could you shoot the pilot in three months from today? <laughs> wow. <laughs> So um, the other role of a producer is to be a, you know, I said, of course. <laughs> Always yes, <laughs> and then figure out the how. <laughs> and uh, so from a stop start of someone, the tragedy of someone dying, searching on his computer for notes and uh, what he'd written, and then to have a, one of the greatest of British playwrights. I mean, this man is a, a, a real to me a really one of the great writers of our time at that time he had three plays playing in london that writer and on the theaters in london and had written i know because the people identify him but he um really lovely really heartbreaking for me and then the opportunity to work with um really talented and uh writer on the first season and then thereafter i think there were I don't think I know there were around 40 writers worked on the show. And uh, so it was, it was a kind of roller coaster where different showrunners were brought on. We, we did the room, first room was, was in London. And thereafter, it was all, it was all shot in Canada because of, um, uh, because of all these tax breaks. But it was, um, for me, it, as every show is, it's a kind of learning curve. You, 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 you're leaning into something which is impossible with a group of people who are extremely talented and focused and and it's it's just really a pleasure but what what the the and I learned so much but what came from that was um in a long form story once once that's set out what is so exciting if the the nature of the storytelling itself provides you with more and more story. Whereas other story, you know, the obvious thing is you have a movie and it has an arc and has a beginning, middle and end of the three acts, five acts, you know. Whereas the, this, the, the, the long form drama, and everyone who's worked in this industry knows that, you, you know, when you pitch these shows, there must be five seasons life in it. And you promise, just like when someone says, can you shoot this in three months, you say yes. There are five um, fantasy stories, five seasons ahead. But those with experience know that there is the possibility that the stories may inevitably change, 
but there will be, there is a story there is story material in here story to grow and uh, people may die and, and uh, have dilemmas and so on but that to me was really fascinating but within that what was really interesting was the were the cultural differences between as <laughs> a European and American in storytelling that sense of history and to um, and it, it, this is not I'm there's no one cleverer than anyone. It's just different cultures have a different perspective, put priorities on, on, and also in the storytelling itself. That I tell a joke, and it, it and it's not funny to you guys, but it, if in the in the room we're discussing or in storytelling discussing the next scene, and you open the door in American storytelling, there's always people killing each other in the next room with guns and or firing at you because you opened the door. And in Europe, it's people have had sex, but they're talking about the sex after they've had the sex. So it's it's a kind of cultural divide. But if you look, it's a sort of silliness. I mean, silly to to say this, but if you if you take that further, how important is it to understand the difference between uh, Japanese um, fascism and German fascism? Because their histories are so different, their cultures were so different, and yet they were accommodating a partnership through a set of political ideas, but living these ideas in different ways. And that became part of the storytelling, which was genuinely exciting for me and, uh, and interesting that there were two people who were kind of oppressing American people, oppressing the world, but with different values. And the other element in this was, and this was a really shocked me was the that on occasions in the writing room the Americans themselves who were fighting against this oppression were seen as terrorists and sometimes they'd be discussed in that way well these were freedom fighters <laughs> these, were, these were fight but they, they in Europe that mistake would never have been made there would have been an understanding that there would be a, 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 a an uprising and so a both in terms of race, really had to push for that to be to be drawn into the story in a kind of believable way, and also of religion of the Jewish community, um, how they would be dealt with in that in, in America, particularly America. But the final point that the story really uh, it, it sort of it, it sort of opened for me was, and and I make a comparison between film and. And television in the movie industry, it's always looked to make America's the film business. <laughs> There's Indian <laughs> uh, film industry. There are other industries, but the American Hollywood system is it rules the world. And I was brought up on American movies, and they're American stories, but for a world audience. In television, it's principally, and it's because of the history of the technology. Every country that, in, when television began, imposed laws and regulated it, not every country, but most civilized countries. You can't do this, you can't do that. You've got to have this, you've got to have that. There are certain rules. It's like publishing newspaper, you know, the regulations. But when it comes to, um, so that made in television very distinctive um, cultural television, cultural drama, cultural news, cultural, they, they fall, and, and difficult to travel. So. In British television throughout my life, there's been very little interest in international sales. So it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a bonus if you vlog stuff. Now, because of the economy, 
and because of the technology, you're designing shows, not every company, most company, apart outside public, even public service broadcasting, you have to look for a global audience. Now, if you look for a global audience, when we began with Amazon, the story, of course, was American. It was an American view. Now, the novel, to be fair to the, to the studio, the, the platform, it was principally set in the US. But I thought if you show to the world um, a series which is about fascism, we should have some scenes in, in Europe and we should have some scenes in Japan. And we should, because it, the audience will think in Europe and Japan, because you want to reach a world audience, will think, this is an American. We'd never do that. We'd never speak this way. We'd never behave in this way. We'd have a different perspective. We'd, have, we'd be telling a different story. So it exposed um, a catch-up that needs to happen in, in drama. It's safe when you're just doing storytelling, you know, kind of a thriller. But if you are going to take historical subjects and you do want to reach a world audience, you have to be very careful, rigorous, to ensure that the storytelling is genuinely reflecting that culture's view. So that, and I, I can give you an experience of an example of this that's happened in Europe. It was a very, very interesting show uh, produced in Germany recently about seven young people who all, you know, late teens, early 20s, at the beginning of the Second World War. And it was their different stories. And it, so it was a story of um, hitherto all dramas set in Germany after the Second World War, where the Germans were bad, they were pretty bad. Fascism was evil. But in that transition, the Germans began to tell the stories that there were people who opposed fascism and the dilemmas that these young people had. And since then, a German audience are very, they're a new generation, sophisticated in saying, we don't want to, we know that this was a bad era, but we also want to see another side. It's a caricature that's grown, that's been allowed to develop over the last 40, 50 years. Anyway, it's these kind of, this is maybe uh, too obscure to discuss. <laughs> right, no, but th th I think this is great. And now I think we can transition into sort of the results of this series in particular, how the audience received it, but also what it did for the Amazon platform. Because I almost see it like, you know, what House of Cards did for Netflix um, Man in the High Castle did for Amazon. So what was yeah. the response? And Kevin but, can jump in there as well. Yeah, well, so I'm glad that uh, JL brought this up first because Man in the High Castle is one of my favorite shows. And I'm a huge uh, Philip K. Dick fan. So Blade Runner, when I was a wee little kid, um, was one of the, the films that pushed me into filmmaking. Yeah. And so, you know, Ridley Scott, one of my favorite directors. And I just wanted to comment that Everything that you said, and that is a Herculean task. Um, everything that you said, you could feel those layers in that show. It was a very smart show, but at the same time, you know, anyone that loves drama could connect with that show. Anyone that just loves sci-fi can connect with that show. Anyone that loves history can connect with that show. I mean, really on so many different levels. Anyone that's a cerebral um, um, watcher can connect with that show. Anyone who loves cinematography can connect with that show. The costume design, I mean, every level, every level, you know, it, it really hit every button. And so, you know, I have to say, just hearing that description, if you talked about 
starting a show, you know, or starting a movie, and you want to put all of that in, into a new show or a new movie, it would feel almost impossible. So to accomplish that goal is, is, is something that is just extraordinary because it did to show, accomplish that. Can I, the, I got a letter yesterday from a guy, a very prominent guy. Um, I'm working on another, uh, being involved in, a, in, a, in a, just an early stage in a series. And uh, we were pitching to a studio yesterday the day, the day before yesterday to the studio boss. And uh, it's a story that it's a franchise basically, but you know, they're reconfiguring it. And, uh, and after this call, I had an, a letter from one of the team of this uh, of the pitching who I've got to know a little. And he said what you'd said, he wrote to me about <laughs> castle. And I wrote back to him and said, what's so, um, so strange about this is that when you make it, you get film critics, television critics, you know, people, professionals, and the studio or the platform see it as a commodity. So many of, from the initial kind of creative thing, it becomes a business in which this is the demographic and this is the audience and this is the sort of result. And um, it had, it, I, I can't say how much it cost, but it was, unbelievable sum of money and I saw one set of figures when it was initially released that was paid for by a new wave of subscription in something like a day and a half it was like 36 hours it was unbelievable unbelievable wow. so that, that's one thing to say the other thing to say on this first call I had with um, Mr. Amazon who's now left and ran it he said um, I said to him I've developed this for BBC Two rather than BBC One. BBC Two being the more of kind of a sophisticated audience, the BBC's more popular audience. And uh, so I said, what is, where's Amazon's focus? This is the beginning of their journey. And he, and I'm almost, because I took notes of it, but remembering it um, really well. He said, we want Washington Post at one end and sci-fi geeks in at the other. And we want that to be applied to every country of the world. So, <laughs> so it, was, it was like, we want, and so you, what you've just said was, we, want, we don't want train spotters to pick holes in the costumes. We don't want, and so to achieve that, we had, we had novelists, um, Japanese academics, historians, um, you know, <laughs> experts in every field who came to um, speak to the different rooms to advise on what would be done at a Japanese funeral, what would be done if these were the moral dilemmas in Japan, how would that conflict to that point, you know, what, what, what racially, what was happening at that point in, in, in time. So that's kind of stuff I just love, you know, <laughs> just it's, uh, the privilege of putting that, these layers together in a story, but, but, but. The most, for me, the most, and this is what I wrote to this exchange of correspondence with this guy I'm working with in this other show. So to me, the most, the, the core of all drama to me is if you don't get any of these things right, um, you know, if the look of the film, to some people, the look is just nothing. You know, they know intuitively it's well-made. You know, my, my mother would say to me, um, oh, God, Stuart, I don't know why you're going all about this crap it's uh 
you either like it or you don't like it. And that's true, you know, she was just, you know, I liked it, I don't like it. It wasn't the kind of analysis of it that we all really enjoyed. But the core thing that my mother would have loved, which sadly she never saw it, she died but before it was went over, was the story of a family. And a family who had been a GI, who'd fought against fascism, and when he was beaten, embraced fascism. So that was a quite a, you know, so we all in, in the world, we fight against something or we're hostile to something, but if you're beaten, you embrace it. He embraced it, hook, line, and sinker. But the, in, the most, the, and I know from the feedback we had as, we, as this went out, the thing that hooked this, and I was convinced this, would, this, was, uh, this was the core story. And this is, um, for me, the most thing I'm most proud of is that um, he had three kids. The little boy who is a, they all embrace fascism. They all know, have no sense of a past history before fascism. When they, you know the story, but just to share it with people who've not seen this series. In, under fascism, if you had a genetic problem, you were killed. If you had a child who was disabled, you died. And they had to be sacrificed because they wanted a pure race. If you're, if you're gay. If you're gay, you're, you're dead. And, and the so, way that man with the high, I'm sorry, the way he'd handled that, even that. Yeah. I'm sorry. So that, was, that was when the little boy, his father and mother, of course, they think we believe in fascism. That's a step too far. This is our little boy. We're going to we're going to remove him. We're going to we're, it's going to be lost. We had a plan to shoot to lose him in Mexico. Hide him, protect him. We're not going to give him to the state to be killed. When the little boy hears, the teenager hears, you did what? I'm giving myself up. He gives himself up to be killed. He's embraced that. Now, in the later part of the story, the two young girls, the two daughters, one is the new she is she's completely embraced it, and it's only the other young girl. The, the sister says to the mother and the father, this is not all. She makes a judgment without history because of a moral kind of, you know, within her. This is Now that in storytelling to me is, you know, it's like a biblical tale. It's a, it's a, it has a, now I, I, I know that that was a really draw and important from the research, from the real important um, uh, part of the, of the, of, of drawing an audience in. So whether they'd been made, whether it's been made for um, without good costumes and sound and great actors, um, I wonder whether that story would still have had that rep. But it's, to me, that's what the story was about and the, the resonance that it had. The wow. other stuff was, um, in a way, draws an audience in and holds an audience. And, and the performances, I thought, so, all of the kind, I think, oh. that's really impressive. Um, so, we scheduled an hour, but this has to be a two-part. I, I, I hate to ask um, if we can have another hour with you, because um, I'm sure your schedule is just crazy. But not, I, I, got my, I got my supper in about an hour and a half. Look, I'm happy to <laughs> you want to listen. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't. Well, look, I was so looking forward to this. I'm sure JL was as well, because I, it, seriously, it's one of my favorite shows. Um, and I've watched the seasons three times. But um, there's so much more that we need to get at. 
And I think we need just one more hour. I think we're going to make this a two-part series. So we haven't done this with our uh, show. We've only done it twice before. Right. And um, because, you know, what you said at the top, which is, you know, just kind of guide me. We don't like to guide. We want to hear the whole journey. And so, and we'd like for it to go the way that it goes. And so um, if you could just give us another hour, if we could schedule another hour with you, um, that would be wonderful. Yeah. So this is, yeah, it's like almost like, yeah, we, we, this is long form podcasting. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, and it's true. We've only done this a handful of times, but I think that this three, three times, right. Uh, warrants this sort of part one, part two podcast. Uh, so I'd love to, yeah, just find another time with you so we can do sort of, you know, the, this is a great sort of segue because now we kind of encapsulated what this particular series meant to you and to audiences worldwide. And then we can continue that journey in a second hour and leave this almost as like a little mini cliffhanger for the audience. Yeah, and I, also your mindset. Yeah, can yeah, I, yeah. can I just say one thing that I really would like to just spend a, not, I'm happy, really happy. <laughs> You're being polite and uh, asking me to do another hour, but I'm, I'm no, really, no, 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 no. Really, this is, this is, yeah, thing, really. I feel is lost in in your generation in this industry is that the stories that are out there that are happening to us all in our lives are not in drama are not found in drama they're buried in in hidden away and <laughs> I like to think Man in the High Castle clearly you you enjoyed it I was really proud of that that story it was based on a story which I really connected with my generation. And it was a privilege for me to, with many other talented people, to make this uh, reality. But I think there's so many other stories that can be told, that should be told, that are not being told. And I, I you know, it's not because, um, you know, I'm, an, I'm a political, you know, interest in history. It's simply, I think there's a role in the industry to entertain and to comedy and fun and switch off and... <laughs> And uh, just, you know, to, to, just to be a pure entertainment. But there's also a role for um, drama to explore. And what's so strange to me in this, war, in this era of communication, in that the great classics of our time didn't have this machine, but, but created these extraordinary stories, you know, the Shakespeare, the, 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 these plays that this man wrote, the, the Greek tragedies, these great kind of plays over the over the last you know hundreds of years have, have been written. The, the great novels, the classics, have they're they're the man in the high castles, <laughs> and these are. But today, there's so few examples of this because, and and, and the irony that I feel is that. Journalism is doing an incredible job in our world today. Are people putting their lives at, at risk, and not just in war, but investigating and challenging and reporting, and really talented people who bring these stories together and make it accessible in all forms, on social media and YouTube and um, in the press and on television. But when it comes to drama, it's a sad kind of pale um, reflection with occasional great movies that come out and occasional great dramas. You know, I think The Wire, for example, David Simon's The Wire was truly a masterpiece. I mean, really a masterpiece in which I didn't know that city, 
but I saw my own cities in this world. I see these people every day and uh, read about them and know about them. And yet it was engaging and dramatic and, and frightening and, and wonderful and shared by. And I can't understand why the commercial potential of doing that kind of drama is just a missing opportunity. And the, the, the one or two companies in the world that have done this, speaking of Tony, when I say HBO, I had the privilege um, to get to know many of these people who were working in HBO until recently. That was building a team of really talented people, really, really talented, able people who were looking to work with the best in the world and deal with stories which are the stories that I'm talking about. And I cannot understand why these few examples um, out there are, um, there, there are not more. So, <laughs> yeah. Those are the jewels <laughs> in the ocean of content. <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, at the top of the next um, conversation, we want to discuss that because we talk about that a lot, actually, in our podcast. Yes. This is an education. In <laughs> Absolutely. This is really, yeah, producing 101. Masterclass. Um, yeah, masterclass. Thank you, Stuart. Yeah. So we'll... Uh, Let's stay yeah. in touch over email, and, and I, I definitely want to conclude the exciting conclusion of your journey next week. And thank you both for your time as well. I appreciate it. Great yeah. to meet you, uh, Kevin. Thank yeah, you. and thank we look you. forward to this seeing This is great. Yeah, and in person, obviously, Kevin's very involved with our film market as well, so he'll be at the Biltmore in July. So we'll be able to chat in person as well. Oh, you're coming? Yeah. yeah. Yes! <laughs> great. <laughs> great. Oh, Drinks on me. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, we're back. We said that this was a big one. That we couldn't great. finish. Couldn't finish. Just so much great anecdotes and stories of, uh, from Stuart. He's just such a, and so kind and generous with his time. Uh, he really just kind of laid out so many great nuggets there. He knows how to weave a tail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. He definitely does. He definitely yeah. does. So, you know, we were talking at the top of the key about the metaverse and what Disney is doing there. Mm -hmm. And really the way it's gonna kind of break down is they're gonna throw a lot of their content into the metaverse. So you'll be able to experience, you know, Mickey and whatever movie in a 3D way, you know, with, you, you know, whether it's a VR experience or augmented reality experience or even on your computer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's going to, or even if you're going to, uh, to Disney, you know, you're right. waiting in line, you'll be able to have a VR experience there in line instead of just, you know, throwing the augmented glasses on your kids. Mm. So they're not like, you know, killing you while you're waiting in line. Right. So of course, they're going to be trying to sell you stuff too. But, um, but I don't know if this is going to be a hiccup in their content pipeline, but they just fired, Disney just fired their head of content. Um, yes. Yeah. That was kind of a, a shocking news. Yeah. Peter Rice, who, you know, just a longtime uh, TV veteran and executive who used to run 20th century television and uh, Fox and then came over after that, that acquisition and was really, yeah, their top content guy over at Disney and uh, came as a surprise even to Peter uh, that he was uh, being let go and, and that they're actually promoting his Lieutenant uh, Dana Walden to the top spot. And yeah. so, you know, something that Disney CEO sounds like a squeeze to me. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, look, there's what they say and there's what they don't say, right? There's text and there's subtext. Every good writer knows that. And I definitely think there was some subtext, especially when the board of Disney came out shortly after 
saying that, you know, they had full confidence in their current CEO, Bob Chapek, because it does definitely seem like, you know, uh, Mr. Rice was making some kind of a play, apparently, uh, you know, obviously we can't prove anything, but he may have been making a run at the CEO position himself. And maybe that, uh, you know, something that Chapek didn't respond too well to. <laughs> Nick, you don't play. Yeah. Yeah. The house, the of, house mouse, of mouse. Hey, that's, that's, that's a corporate game of Vicious. thrones right there. It's uh, it's cutthroat. Not a mouse trap. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you got the puns today. I love it. <laughs> you can't be coming with dog food. Oof. You better be coming with some expensive cheese. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this you get was, the squeeze. Uh, he got squeezed out. So Peter Rice is out at Disney. Dana Walden has been promoted. And uh, it definitely feels like uh, something that, that Chapik is trying to reassert his, his control over the company, which had been flailing. You know, he's had a lot of controversies this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, from, yeah. you know, stuff to do with an apparent falling out with former CEO Bob Iger to yeah. you know, the recent legislation in Florida that some folks said he didn't do enough. Others said he should have just stayed out of it altogether. And, uh, you know, obviously issues at the parks with, you know, uh, on various fronts. And, and so I think that he's just also dealing with himself with new technologies. Where's Disney Plus going to go? Uh, what's going on with their animation division, their theatrical division? Their metaverse. Their metaverse. You know, just there, there's so much coming at this company and uh we'll see we'll see because i think that they're trying to figure out things in real time uh while making these huge multi-billion dollar decisions uh and it's not an easy position no matter who's in that seat i can imagine no yeah and you know every company really is having because in this new world of course world of streamers but eyeballs you know to capture these eyeballs right this competition everywhere, like Instagram, yeah. TikTok, you know, where you, so you, you really have to be on your ones and twos, you know, mm -hmm. look at this, man. I mean, Discord, Twitch, you know, these platforms are moving up. And so you just have to be, you know, relevant. Right. And you, and, and, and relevant means, you know, you have to really have your finger on the pulse. And if you don't, guess what? You may lose over 200,000 subscribers. Well, yeah, no, speaking of, of, of the streaming wars and what's going on, Netflix, yeah, losing $50 billion, right? Uh, it equates to about $50 billion of, yeah, yeah, of, of, of loss. That's what they're saying, you know, because they had to couple the, the subscription losses with their price increases. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of that, in my opinion, having to do with so much competition in the streaming world right now. Uh, you know, we talked about Disney Plus's quick growth when it launched in the fall of 2019 to, you know, the, the other players, like we mentioned, HBO Max, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, you know, there's just so Paramount Plus now, uh, there's just so much competition for those streaming dollars on top of the social media platforms, the TikToks, the YouTubes. right. Uh, so much competition for your time and your eyeballs and it's uh, it's not an easy game and it is uh, it's getting tougher by the minute it seems like even for the biggest player in the streaming wars Netflix yeah and so you know they're reconfiguring their machine and when I say finger on the pulse even I and I you know take these as tax write-offs you know I have all cable I'll have every channel and every you know because I need to be able to watch what I, you know 
what I need to watch. It's part of my job, you know, to be able to watch what I need to watch when it comes out, what's hot on yeah. what network, how this network works and all that. Cause you know, I run a multimedia company and you know, so that's part of my job, but even me that I take these things as tax write-offs with that Netflix increase. I was like, Whoa, that, yeah. Huh? Huh? Yeah. You know? And so you have to, I mean, they want to pay for more content, but I think, you know, even the Netflix model, you know, mm. just throw money at it, you know, has gotten to be a little bit too much. Cause look, you look at even HBO, I'm glad that they still are churning out high quality content. I, the, I'm not going to talk about mergers or what's going to happen with the mergers or whatever, right. but you know, the high quality content is coming uh, through uh, HBO max. Right. Um, for for sure, you know, Disney, Disney is Disney, you know, and I'm watching every, you know, like Moon Knight with another Miami native. Um, I'm up, um, ah, I'm up. Oscar yes, Isaac. Mr. Isaac. You know, Moon Knight was incredible. Moon Knight was incredible. You know, all the offerings that are coming out, uh, uh Kenobi, love it. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, they're that's coming doing, out with with a lot. Yeah. And so how do you keep up? Um, and, yeah. you know, and, and, and you know, we're going to talk about this story, but yeah, I think one of the biggest issues and something that studios have always sort of tried to tackle this issue issue is, you know, you can throw a lot of money at it. You can throw a lot of big stars at it to try to get more attention, more eyeballs, more dollars, more streaming time, whatever you want to call it. But it's very hard to predict what's going to be a massive hit or a winner. And, and I think that's part of it as well. Yeah. But, you know, there, there's, I don't want to talk about formulas, you know, but right. when you, there is indelible classics, you know, that, and so you have Star Wars and, you know, some of the movies were just like, eh. but, you know, I think Disney charted a course where when um, they came out with the Mandalorian, John Favreau, you know, right. we're going to come out with, you know, this high quality offering hmm. and, you know, that's been hit after hit after hit. You know, yes. in, in, in terms of engaging storytelling, mm. it's it's not and it wasn't just throwing money at it. You know, it's engaging story. It's, you know, like the, the stories have are substantive. And so. You no, know, like, indel yeah. indelible classics, you know, when you when you talk about Netflix and, I, you know, I'm, I'm putting, you know, we're going to talk about two, you know, an older one and then, you know, a new one of my favorites. You know, they Netflix has come out with some really, really great um you know sto storytelling outfits but they've also come up with some a lot of stinkers that they put a lot of money into them right and stars you yeah. know and i think it has to do with hey let's just ramp up as quick as we can you know get that content in the can and you know keep it churning yeah. and so I, you know yeah. they're now looking back and kind of fi figuring out you know what what's next so yeah, and, you know, I'm a I'm a Netflix fan. That uh, that again, I take these things off of my taxes, but that price, you know, kind of hike over a short period of time, you know, over two three years, that was that was a bit much. Um, yeah. But they did. I'm going to talk about one of my older favorites, Peaky Blinders, mm. Cillian Murphy, one of my favorite actors, you know, um, and not just because of my Irish my Irish heritage. Oh, um, there it is. You got to tell him, Kevin, where's your pot of gold? Uh, yeah, exactly. 
go back and get my pot of gold. Uh, oh, my great grand, <laughs> <laughs> my great grandfather uh, immigrated from Ireland and uh, married my uh, great grandmother. But um, and that's coming up more because you know I started this business in Ireland and doing a lot of business there now in Ireland. But mm. talk about and get you know it's a BBC show you know so Netflix picked it up from BBC but engaging storytelling you know that show you know engaging characters that you want to get involved with and stay in bed with over time hmm. 10 years that that show has been you know Celine Murphy's been on that show for 10 years just imagine sitting with a character for 10 years that's a hell of a run yeah and it, you know that that's a hell of a run and so the you know the ability for them to acquire high-end content you know that's front and center you know and yeah a good flashpoint, but, and also, but building original content. So stranger things that just came out. Another one of my favorite shows, you know, yeah. hit again. Yeah. Like a sleeper hit. I don't think anyone really thought, you know, going back to when Netflix first launched that very first, Oh, when they first launched it. Yeah. That's right. Strangers, that was going to be such a massive <laughs> hit, um, you know, cause it was kind of quirky, but I think it had that sort of mix of interesting characters and eighties nostalgia, but that, the old is new again. Yeah, and it just kind of hit a zeitgeist within the yeah. pop culture community, and it just never slowed down. And and you know, uh, but the question for the Netflixes of the world is, you know, how do you repeat that? How do you capture that magic over and over again so consistently? It's very hard to yeah. predict that. Yeah, I mean, you know, Stranger Things is the number one uh, um, audience in terms of audience, number one in terms of audience for North America, you know, yeah. for Netflix. It still hasn't captured the global. They do get, I mean, Squid Games, huge, huge global hit. That's their biggest. Sure. And so they have that, you know, I don't think that Bridgerton, the second season, you know, hit those numbers that the first season hit. But, you know, so they do have, you know, a lot of hits. But, you know, look, Stranger Things cost $30 million an episode. $30 million an episode. I think, you know, it's a 12 episode arc. So, you know, that's <laughs> well, 300, $360 million. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. And the numbers just keep rising for these big franchise series. Now, if you look at what Amazon Prime is currently in production on that huge Lord of the Rings series, which. Yeah, but I mean, that's a different thing. You know, they're, still, right. they're selling refrigerators and food and. Right. You know. Yeah. For them, unfortunately, their content is a byproduct of their primary. <laughs> uh, you know, you could say the same for Apple, maybe. Uh, you know, so it's, it's all about getting you to stay on your iPhone or your tablet or whatever. And if, you, if we can provide you some, let's say, Take. content to help do that, then they're happy to do that, you know, but again, it's really, you know, again, when you have these major companies where content is, again, a byproduct of the main goal, and they're able to spend essentially what is their marketing budget, what they would in the old days spend on, you know, Super Bowl ads or print ads or, you know, uh, 30 seconds on your local news, whatever, you know, the five o'clock news when that was important. 
now all that money is being siphoned into creating original content, which is driving traffic to their platforms and getting you to, you know, subscribe for two day free shipping of, like you said, everything from appliances to your groceries from Whole Foods. And yeah. so, you know, uh, again, but is there a danger for the creative industry when the film, the content, and it was a producer, I think was ahead of the uh, Academy decades ago that said when content becomes a byproduct and not the thing itself, that's when we can lose touch of our industry. So I think as creatives, as filmmakers, we always have to keep sight on what's important, which is always trying our best to push the envelope and focus on new, interesting, diverse stories to tell, which there are so many out there, yeah. and not become this sort of noxious byproduct for a major corporation. And, and nothing against you know, Amazon or Apple, because again, they are investing dollars in our industry, tons of money. I mean, um, Apple, you know, they're about to come out with um, their own VR headsets that it's VR and AR together. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they're products, you know, but they, but this is another company that has done high quality content that, and they started, you know, with a smaller, a smaller amount of content and then have built a lot of high value content over time. Um, but it does help sell their products. And then, you know, they're entering that other space that I just mentioned. Right. But, right. you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there now. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there is. And so I think that it's just really, again, up to the storytellers to keep telling those stories, finding, like you said, being sort of uh, on the pulse of what's next, adapting to it quickly, but always using creativity. Like you said, you know, I think that unfortunately the Star Wars franchise even had gotten a little bit stale. And then John Favreau stepped in and just inserted so much new life and energy and creativity and really almost single-handedly a lot of folks say that uh saved the star wars franchise like you know he was the luke skywalker <laughs> that just yeah. kind of came in and saved the day and you know uh and renewed it with so much energy and so i think a lot of the bigger franchises you know if they're able to get a filmmaker a visionary like a john favreau on board and really reinvent these franchises while also coming up with new original stories then I think that we will have more of excuse to pay those premium streaming dollars that, you know, I know is, is hurting our, <laughs> our, our business bank accounts at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it, look, man, we have to feel blessed that we're able to work in the industry. How many people do we know from college, you know, that are still in it? So, you know, it's I true. feel blessed. Yeah, yeah. I feel blessed to, you know, be in the industry and be in it, in it. So, I'm Likewise, my friend. <laughs> 12, you know, and, um, you know, being able to kind of, you know, parlay with our other industry peers and uh, making it happen, man. Yes, sir. So I think yeah. uh, with that, um, can't wait to bring you the next part of the, the Stuart McKinnon, the grand conclusion of this interview on the next Screen Heat Miami. But I think until then, we're we're good to go for this week. Covered a lot I'm of Kevin ground. Sharpley. J.L. Martinez. And this is uh, Screen Heat Miami. We'll hear you next week. Dali. Boom. <laughs>